Well, good morning, everyone. So you just left the gym, and you're hot and sweaty, and you're uh, out of sorts, but thank the Lord you still have hair mostly on top of your head. It looks really bad, and so you put a stocking cap on the top because you need to run into a grocery store because you need to get some fresh greens. You're out at home, and the greens you bought went, went bad early. Did anybody have this problem before? You know what I'm talking about? And so you just want to get in and out of the grocery store real fast. And so you, you want to get in, get out, and you don't want to be noticed, right? And you meet three friends there. And a former school teacher from one of your kids who's amazed your kid isn't in prison already. And uh, they greet you, and you're a little embarrassed, and you just want to get by without being noticed. You're on your way to church, happened to a friend of mine right here on 301. He's running late, so he speeds, because he's going to church. It's okay to speed when you're going to church. <laughs> he gets pulled over by an officer, and while he's getting that warning ticket, some of you wave to him. <laughs> he just wants to be unnoticed. He, I just don't want to be noticed, right? Have you had this experience? Don't raise your hand. Happened to another friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine in Chicago. He gets a Sunday off, so he and his wife decide, let's go over to this other church down the street. We, this guy's friends of ours, so we're going to go to his church. So they, they make a matter of showing up right at the start time so they don't have to greet anybody. They slip in during the opening song. They sing the opening song here, a, a wonderful pastoral prayer, another song. They can feel someone's watching them. They look down the road. There's an usher, not really an usher, more of a guard. He's down at the end of the row, and he's motioning to my friend, the minister. And he leans over, and he said, Dr. Reverend so-and-so on stage wants you to join him. He said, I don't want to join him. This is my day off. I want to be unnoticed. He said, yes, sir, I understand, but he really wants you on stage. He wants you to bring greetings. He said, just tell him this is my day off, my day off. He goes back with his wife. She you know, he holds her hand while he... Because you don't get to do this when you're a pastor. You can't just stand and hold your hand if your wife or take notes together or do what you guys do, make out a grocery list while I preach. I know, I know what's going on. Next song comes, and that usher, that armor bearer, shows up again. And Dan, my friend, goes down the road and says, What do you want? Do you not understand? He goes, uh, Dr. Reverend so-and-so wants you on stage. He said, you tell him I said no. He's a friend of mine. I know him. He said, I know. He knows you're a friend of his. That's why he wants you on stage. He wants you to bring greetings. I have been told not to return without you. Okay. So Dan looks at Diane, and Diane goes, go. Just, even though it's our day off, just go. He has to stand up, read a scripture, bring, bring prayers and greetings from his home church to their church. And, before, and to add to this, as he steps out of, the, out of the row to go up the aisle, up to the stage, the armor bearer holds out a robe to Dan. My, my buddy Dan's not a robe guy. He's barely sandals and shoes and shirts. He can barely get in a restaurant. And they make him put a robe on because that's the, the, the wear of the day on stage. He just wants to get by with being unnoticed. Our story today takes us to a group of people who just want to get by in life unnoticed. And I want you to know, even though you may feel like your life is unnoticed and unremarkable and un-whatever-you-want-to-say, God knows and God notices 
and he smiles upon you and he directs your paths and he is out for your good and he's putting the elements of life together even though they're sinful and wicked he's putting those together for his glory and for your good our story comes from the book of esther if you have a bible go with me and uh we're going to go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, slow down as you get to Ezra, then the book of Nehemiah, then the book of Esther. And, and as our story begins, it's in Persia, about 450, maybe 500 years before Jesus. And if you were to look on the screen, you'll see a map. This is how big Persia is. It used to be called Babylon. And what happens, if you can find Israel on the map, and, uh, and a lot's happening in this region even today, right? Even this week, right? I mean, there's, to the north is what we call Turkey and Greece, and, and to the east, this is, uh, we would call this uh, Asia Minor, and then going into Pakistan, Iraq, Iran. That's these nations today, over to, the, over to the stands, the Kyrgyzstan countries. That's where this country of Persia is. It used to be called Babylon. Babylonians actually went in and took over Israel, and when they did... They, they scoured out all the profits they could, all of the resources, and they took the people who had the trades, took them back east uh, to, to their big cities and took them captive as slaves to work for them. Then Babylon fell and Persia, the Persian Empire came. Thousands of Jewish people are still left in this land called Persia. Uh, and then eventually they would let them out and Ezra would be one of the first ones to go back. We always talk about Ezra and Nehemiah like they acted alone. But actually, there were whole caravans of people. A whole, it was like a small city trying to travel. If you could, on a map, you'd find the Tigris-Euphrates River. They would actually have to travel from Persia up to the Tigris-Euphrates River because you couldn't go across the desert. You'd die. So you had to go up, take the longer route to make sure you got there. You had enough water to get back to Israel. Then you had to start all over again because the city is in rubble. It is in ruins. And, and Ezra, the story of Ezra, is the rebuilding of the temple in, in Jerusalem. And then if and then Nehemiah will join him with another caravan of people, and they're going to rebuild the city. So those are all the people who got back, but there's still thousands and thousands who never made the trip. They're still left behind, even though they were told, get out of here. But they still stay back. They are, in their minds, still slaves. They will never leave that mental spot. And even though there's a sizable number staying in Persia, they would ask themselves the question, why even go back? If we go back to this old country, we have to rebuild from and start all over again. Everything has been torn down or burned. We'll just stay here. It's more comfortable here. I know we're living in Babylon, which is now Persia, and they have false gods and all kinds of horrible things. But it's an easier kind of life, and so they decide to stay. And if ever you wanted to just like be unnoticed, if you're a foreigner who used to be a slave and you're still in the foreign land, but you're still viewed as a slave, that's when you don't want to be noticed. So the Jews who are left there, they really want to be left alone. If they could melt away into the woodwork, they would love that. And by the way, if you're in a small group, um, we'll be launching small group materials, which are really small video vignettes by Tony Evans called... Uh, called Pathways, and it's the story of Esther, and you can get that material, you, uh, small group leaders, you'll get that online, there's also some study notes that go with it, you can print those notes out or get them off your screen, just read them off your screen, or use it online, or print them, either way, however you want to do it, um, and you need to remember the Evans this week in your prayers, Priscilla Shire, their daughter, uh, Anthony Evans, a singer, There's, they have four kids, um, Crystal and Jonathan, 
Um, but Lois went home to heaven this last week. I don't know if you knew that or not. But she had been suffering from cancer, and Tony's wife. And so the funeral will be this week. And So just pray for them. Good people. really. And one of my heroes, one of my, uh, just a great Bible teacher, and, and she is a dear heart of a, of a lady. About, I don't know when, 15, 16 years ago, um, this is off the notes, okay? Um, I, Wanda and I uh, went to Colorado Springs to focus on the family for a pastor's family conference. And that particular conference, Dr. Dobson invited the whole family to come because he said ministerial families have a certain pressure. We want to give you a gift and we want to bless you. And so they brought in some guest speakers and they had fun trips for the kids and, and relaxation points for husbands and wives. And, uh, and Lois Evans was there. And um, so I got, I got my girls together, like, come on, you got to get a picture with Lois Evans. They were like, really, Dad? Really? How long is this going to take? We got the Red Rocks, and there's guys in the youth group over there we'd rather be with. And, but I got a picture with, uh, with the Evans family, with, uh, with my kids. And I was able to, in the picture, keep them from having their eyes rolling. It was a, kind of a miracle moment. But pray for the Evans family. All right, back to Esther. Our setting is this. Esther is an orphan girl. Her real name is Hadassah, which means Myrtle. Her nickname or, or Persian name is Esther, which means star. Her parents have died. Her uncle Mordecai takes care of her and really kind of informally adopts her. And um, foreigners... Uh, will always feel like outsiders, they just will. They're in a foreign land, they've always been in a foreign land, they don't even know what the homeland looks like. Does that make sense? They don't even know, they, they don't yearn for the homeland, why? Because they, they've never been there, they've only heard stories. They have songs about it and all that, and, and, and on top of that, Ezra and Nehemiah and thousands of their friends got to go, so we're the left behinds. Uh, when they choose the teams for the game, basketball game, they pick up sides, and you're the one left, and that's, Mordecai, and that's Esther, and thousands of others. And so they, even though they stay behind, they would just as soon be unnoticed. They don't want to be uh, on the radar, anybody's radar. I think, personally, uh, this, is, this is me entering into the situation, but I think, personally, what we have is a child here, a young girl who feels abandoned, doesn't know what she's even going to look like as an adult. Why? Because she doesn't know what her parents look like, because they're dead. She doesn't know uh, a bunch of things, so she has a lot of questions. So this is a girl who could have low self-esteem, certainly have a potential of depression, certainly be defeated, certainly feeling uh, carrying in her body the, the feelings of abandonment. Okay. Now, having said all that, Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled all, over 127 provinces stretched from India to Kush. Stop there. Your translation may, may say uh, Azuarish, and that's the word for like king or pharaoh or leader, ruler. And then his actual name is Xerxes. Depends on the version that you're using. It's the same guy, okay? And he's ruling in this land, which we just saw on the map, is huge. And in that hugeness of that land, it's like the United States having 50 states. They had 127 states. It's, it's a big piece of property. And he's king over all of it. And at that time, King Xerxes ruled, uh, reigned from the royal throne in the citadel of Susa. 
And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, uh, uh, um, the princes, the nobles, the provinces were present. Some believe, stop right there, some believe that, that when, when Xerxes held this party, he gets together, he's going he's gonna to have a gathering of, of his military lead. He's going to have a party, but he's going to show off his military strength and maybe even have some backroom meetings, strategy meetings, to get ready to invade Greece or the Grecian Empire. And so some believe the six-month party is actually a series of planning sessions, but the party is the cover, and it's the sales pitch to say, this is how rich we are. We have what we need to take over more countries, more, more provinces, okay? Having said all that, now, verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. For how many days, class? 180, that's half a year. I've been to some long parties. Never that long. Right? <laughs> oh, my word. Six months. I'm going to a party. I'll be back in six months. When the days were over, the king had a banquet. Uh, okay, so that should be a couple more hours, right? No, it's seven more days. But just when you think it's over, it, he has, oh yeah, I got one more. And then he opens the gate for seven more days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people that, uh, from the least to the greatest were in the citadel of Susa. So at the end of this, he has a grand finale, probably for all the servants who've been feeding these military people for six months. Do you get this? So there, there's this massive blowout fireworks at the very end. Verse 6. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords, white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. It's, this thing is just dressed out. Okay? There are couches of gold and silver in a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. You're reading right past this. This is not... This is not a couch that has gold on it or has gold laced into the fabric. No, this is a couch made of gold. Not gold-plated. This is a couch made of gold. Think about it. I, when I proposed to Wanda, it took me months to save up for a ring. I would still be making payments if I had to buy her a couch. Think about that. Wine is served in goblets of gold, verse 7, each one different from the other. Did you get that? These are all custom-made goblets. And the goblets are made of gold to match the couch they're sitting on. Each one's different than the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberalities. He has unlimited amounts of wine. What could possibly go wrong? By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stores to serve each man as he wished. By the way, get the word man down. That means, it doesn't mean mankind. It means man, because this was a guy party, because this was probably a military buildup. Okay? Next verse, which leads us to the cultural context. Queen Vashti, this is his wife, also gave a banquet for the women. So there's a women's event down the hall in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Okay, get this. Six-month party. What amount, of, uh, a mind-blowing amount of wealth being displayed. At the end of it, he has a blowout final seven days to thank all of the servers. They, they drink out of golden goblets. There's no end to the amount of wine they can drink. And, and, and this is expense upon expense. And your tax dollars are paying for it. 
I mean, the country's paying for it, okay? The queen has her own event for the, for the ladies. And on the seventh day, verse 10, when King Xerxes was in high in spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, uh, Mahuman, uh, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, uh, Abagath, Zethar, and Carcass, names which I think should be your next children, okay? <laughs> seven eunuchs. Why eunuchs? They didn't want anybody who served the king to everything he could take over and propagate. So they would castrate them. It's just horrible to even think this way. But this is the way they took all of the testosterone out of the palace. They just took care of it at the front end. And so these guys became workers for the king. It meant no children for them. And don't even take over because you won't have children to serve uh, in, in the population. So these are eunuchs. And they bring before Queen Vashti wearing the royal crown. And so he is high in spirits, get this now, and he commands the seven eunuchs to bring Vashti to him and in order her to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she is lovely to look at. Okay, get this. He has been drinking now for six months on, on week, on week uh, you know, 26. He says, one more week of this. He's high in spirits and he says to his staff, Bring my wife in. I want all the guys to see what I got. This is a guy party. So there are hundreds of men, and there's going to be one woman on stage, his wife. Okay? Do you have that context down now? Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused. <laughs> I'm not going in there. Not doing it. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now he is embarrassed in front of his friends. He is emboldened because he's, so, he's an egotist. He is, he is a high roller spender. It's been more than obvious. And this is the grand finale. And then in it, a drunken stupor, he decides, hey, I'm going to have my wife parade in front of you to let you know I got it better than any of you guys. He's got competition written all over him. And she says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to parade myself like that. Let me stop right there. And I mean, let me tell you, I need to say this, but this, this is not the main thrust of the message, nor is it the main thrust of the passage. This message is not, nor is this text about alcohol. But there, there is a greater message from God about God's sovereignty over all, and even in the bad things that God works us together for good. But let me tell you, alcohol, if you are not careful, can do you some damage, some hurt. And I know alcohol can do you some good. It, it could be a very good medicinal for you, and it comes from natural resources, and I understand all that. Don't send me the email. I get that. <laughs> but if, if wine is your friend, and it is too close to you, then it's too close to you. The wine made him high in spirit, verse 10. So he spoke rashly, and he created relational damage with his wife, and then he created pride damage with the other officers and his other guests and now he's in a corner like a barking dog and the only thing he can do now is bite because he has no other option and his pride is at stake and yet he's, he's not thinking clearly why because he's he has had too much to drink and I, let me be really careful with you to say this I don't believe the Bible teaches total abstinence I do believe the Bible teaches total control and if you cannot have control then don't go there if I can't control my car at 100 miles an hour, 
I should not be driving at 100 miles an hour, okay? Okay, so in light of that, I say that to you, and I'm telling you, most people, this is going to go right by, if that ticks you off, then, then that may be something you need to revisit yourself, okay? I don't want to implode on you all the guilt of that. I do want you to, to be responsible for your life, and this is an illustration of irresponsible drinking and then irresponsible actions. He's asking his wife to do something no sane-thinking guy would do, and that's to parade in front of hundreds of men. It makes no sense. It's not going to end well, but he's drunk, and so he does it. All right, off of that now. The king assembles his consultants. Verse 15. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Verse 16. Then Memuka, Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, only, not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the people of the provinces of, the, of King Xerxes. The consultants are building a case now, and, and what they're saying is this, she's done wrong, but it isn't just against you, it's against all the guys. For the queen's conduct, verse 17, will become known to all the women, and so they'll despise their husbands, like it isn't happening already. Okay. Sorry. King Xerxes commands Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she would not come. And so they're saying now, if, if you let the word get out that the king's wife doesn't obey, then none of our wives are going to obey. And, and I don't have to listen to you. That's what will happen. So verse 18. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end of disrespect and discord. They're saying if the, if the king doesn't get respected, the country's going to go under, and the, it'll happen at the family level, and it'll happen at the national level, and they sell this as a fear factor, and fear is a great motivator, a great sales piece. Verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him set an issue, a decree. Let it be written in the and the laws of the Persians and Medes. You've heard of the laws of the Medes and Persians. That's where this is from. And it cannot be repealed. In other words, you can't change it. Vashti will never again enter the presence of King Xerxes. The husband will never see his wife. The wife will never see her husband again. So the king gave the royal position for someone else and, and gave it to someone else who's better than her. So watch this dynamic. This guy who's an ego maniac gets overloaded with alcohol, makes a rash decision, then has his buddies consult him to divorce his wife. It just gets worse. Verse 20, Then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm. All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Do you really think that writing a law will make the wives respect their husbands? Oh, I have to respect him. That's the law. No. Guys, if you don't know this, you don't get given respect because of government. You get given respect because you earn it. You, earn, you, you work at it every day. It's like trust. You earn trust every day. And, and so this is not going to work. Verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as um, Memukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all the kingdom, to each of the provinces, his own script, so each of the people in their own language. Because there's 127 provinces, there's a lot of different languages going on. They proclaim it in every language. 
that the man should be ruler in his own household using his own native tongue. What could possibly go wrong? Chapter 2. Now King Xerxes, in a furious subsided, he remembers Vashti. He's, oh man, I miss her. But I can't have her back. Why? Because I got this rule I can't see her anymore. That gum, who wrote that rule? Oh, I did. So he, he can't go back. So the, the king's personal attendants proposed, let's put out a search. Let's get, we'll get you another woman. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get all the beautiful young virgins, verse 2, for the king. Verse 3, the king will appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring these beautiful women into the harem, into the citadel of Susa. So, okay, we have 127. Let's suppose we pick the best one, two, three out of each. That's 350. You got 375 girls now, okay? If they just got three from each state, let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them. Get this, they're going to give beauty treatments to two, three hundred girls, and he's going to pick one. The winner is going to marry this power-crazed ego king, okay? Um, I, I, yeah, I have no words. There's nothing that this just blows my mind to think that this, they think this plan could work. Young women, in verse 4, then the young woman, woman who pleases the king will be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king. Of course it did. Why? I got 300 women coming over. One of them's bound to work. Okay? Okay. Now in the Citadel of Susa, verse 5, there's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. There are 12 tribes. This is Benjamin's tribe. His name's Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish. What they're doing is they're giving you the lineage so you know this is a Jew's Jew. This is a real deal. Okay? Got it? He's been carried into the exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar because that's part of the history we just covered, right? King of Babylon, among those taken captive under Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That'd be the southern side of Israel. Okay? So Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this young woman, who is also known as Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew, Jewish name, and Esther is her Persian name. It's kind of a nickname. And she had a lovely figure and is beautiful. That's, um, scholars tell us that those two different terms are there. It seems redundant. That a lovely figure is exactly our English for a lovely figure, but then, and she's beautiful, that means her face is beautiful. So not only is her figure beautiful, but her face is beautiful, but that's not all. Her heart's beautiful, too. And the king notices that because he's got lots of beauty in front of him, and yet one seems to stand out. Mordecai had taken him as her daughter because her mother and father died. Get this now. These are former slaves taken into captivity, can't get home, now have the opportunity to go home, don't go home, stay back. These people, uh, they don't even mention the name of God. Why? Because he is, he is so poo-poo in the land of Persia. And the, the people who really believe in God, they practice God in, in the God land, which is Israel. But we don't even talk about it here. And I'm telling you, you might be in a business setting. You might have a job. But you, God's name never even comes up. Why? Because it's just not appropriate. And that's where they were. By the way, the whole book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. Not once. Not once. 
not even prayer mentioned. They talk about fasting, but not even prayer. So Mordecai takes care of this younger girl, um, Esther, but she's an orphan, and she always feels left out. She always feels the left behind, never has the chance to go back to the homeland, although she doesn't know what that homeland looks like, doesn't know what her parents look like, always wondered, and I think there's a, a mystery in her head going on in her head all the time. And look what happens to her. Verse 8. The king's order and the edict gets proclaimed. Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa, put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken. I can't believe it. There's a million young girls out there, and you have to pick the one Jewish girl out of the crowd. Yeah, they pick Esther and take her to the king's palace, entrusted to Haggai, who's in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, verse 9. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments, special food. He assigned her to seven female attendants. Get this, this is getting even more expensive. I, can't. I don't know about you, but just think about what you pay for a manicure, a pedicure, a, a back rub, a massage, a day at the salon, right? Don't Stop thinking about it, because it's expensive. Do that with 100, 200 women. Now do it for seven days. These are house payments, people. Right? She gets special treatment, special food, seven, uh, sorry, seven female attendants, not seven days. This goes on for a year, 365 days. Verse 10, Esther hasn't revealed her nationality. Why? Because she wants to live. She doesn't want to be treated like a slave. She doesn't want to be kicked out and humiliated. So she doesn't reveal her, her family background. And Mordecai's forbidden her to do so. Don't you dare tell. And he's so worried, verse 11, he walks back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how is Esther. Every day he's walking outside, looking up the window, and hoping on a break she'd come out and go, I'm okay. He'd say, you hang in there, baby. They'll pick someone else. I mean, you're a beautiful girl and everything, but they'll pick someone else so you need to come home. Mm, no, they picked her. Now, I, I had to stop in the narrative right here and just say, this is an illustration of God protecting God's people in spite of sinful life and in spite of sinful choices. And you may be like me, covering for your own sinful choices in life or regretful, or you may be at this point where you say, I don't, God isn't in, involved in the plane of my life because I made this mistake. And you date it, 2005 or whatever it is. And you, you have this stamped in your head or your heart. Get this, Mordecai and Esther were violating Jewish law. They were told to go back to the promised land, and they didn't. They were told, don't ever marry outside the race, because you marry outside the race, you're marrying outside the faith. It's the bigger issue. And she was about to marry the king. That, that's a, 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 a huge conflict for this Jewish girl. She was told never to go to bed with a guy that isn't her husband. She had done that. But why? Because it was the king. Understand this. Even out of all of that sin, God says, I still have a greater plan. I tell you, church, even in light of our sin, God has a greater plan. Mordecai knows she's a bit of the remnant. She's Jewish. There's a stigma to this. You can't deny. Um, and he just wants to get by unnoticed. He just wants his little girl to come home. 
and he realizes this isn't going to happen. And the king has total control over all that, and you're almost helpless. And maybe you've been that way in the Christian life yourself. Well, the king gets attracted to this girl, Esther, verse 17. She's not like the other girls. Of course she's not. She's taught to respect the family and to honor her, her parents, who she doesn't really know. She's taught the Jewish way of life from Mordecai. She won the favor and approval, verse 17, of more than any of the other virgins. And so he sets the royal crown on her head. He makes her queen instead of Vashti. This is a living story of the sovereignty of God, the fact that God rules over in spite of our, of our sin. God places the right people in the right places for the right job. She has no idea what the assignment's going to be. And furthermore, not only does she have no idea, she's not ready for it either. And when it comes to her, she says, I can't do this. And those are all signs to you and me. When we get given those opportunities, we say, we can't do this. The Lord says, yeah, I've got you here at this point for that very reason. And you can, but you can only do it if you trust me. The plot gets better. Chapter 2 closes. You know, I, I told you Mordecai would be outside the gate all the time. He's outside the gate, and he's standing there waiting. Some say he had a job. I just think he's waiting for her to come out, for Esther to come out. And he hears guards talking, but they're just talking. And as they're talking, he hears, my gosh, they're talking about killing the king. Those guys are plotting to kill the king. And so he tells Esther, you got two guards at the gate ready to kill your husband. <clears throat> you need to tell Xerxes these two guys are, are going to kill him. And then when you, and so Esther goes in and says, uh, hey, hubby, there's two guys ready to kill you. And by the way, my uncle Mordecai told me, so when you get credit, give credit, don't give credit to me, give credit to Mordecai. He heard it at the gate. They researched it and found it to be true. They took those guys out. This is horrible. If you don't want to hear this, close your ears. They hang them on a pole, but they impale them on a pole. In other words, they die an ugly death, and they die an ugly death so nobody ever turns on the king again. Now, that part of the story is going to come back because here's my deal. I think if some of us were Mordecai, we hear about the king being killed, we'd say, <laughs> okay, I guess the queen gets it all, huh? So my niece will get the whole kingdom if he dies. So he just kind of let nature take its course. Or I never did like Xerxes. No, he does the right thing by preserving his life. And that will come down to do the right thing at the right time. And God will reward that. So what are the lessons? Three of them. <clears throat> First lesson is this. Just because God seems silent doesn't mean he's uninvolved. You may be feeling that today. You know, my life is so quiet. It's so ordinary. It is so predictable. God doesn't even notice. No, he notices. And he is in the ordinary in your life. Number two, even when it seems chaotic, God has undiminished control. It doesn't go away on him. He has total control. Even when it seems horrible, A third a lesson that I'm learning is that no detail goes unnoticed to God. No detail. 
Um, why? Because he is out for his glory, which ends up being God is out for my good because that's part of his glory plan. So, here we go. You're saying, how could that possibly be? Stop just for a moment and think of it this way. Here's the God of heaven, and he looks down upon his people, and a group has gone back to the promised land, and they're rebuilding Israel, and it's all great. And God is working in their lives, and Nehemiah's life is full of prayer, Ezra full of prayer, full of petitions to the Lord. Not that they're without trouble. They have trouble and they have plenty. They have people out to try to kill them too, but they succeed. There are success stories there. Mordecai has no success stories. He's kind of felt like feeling left behind. He's kind of feeling like, maybe I should have gone. Maybe I should have packed up before everybody started dying. In fact, it is so, it is so ordinary in Susa that God's name is not even mentioned, although the king's name is going to be mentioned over 100 times in the book of Esther. Is God in that? Yeah, he is. Is God in it? And is God out for my good? Even though there are ego-driven people in the world who are the leaders who want to throw a party and throw tons of money at people and their power with it and their influence, God is in that. And although God would never condone it, he even brings together that rash rash drunken stupor of a command woman get in here and she goes no thank you sir and then she gets banished she gets dismissed dumped as a wife and as a queen we never hear from her again and does god see all that yes he does and god sees the advisors who give to the king bad advice which makes him think that oh if i just get another woman everything will be fine he gets another woman, and she is fine, but he doesn't realize she has another whole agenda, and she has another whole loyalty, and it, it's, it supersedes anything he could ever present to her. <clears throat> he'll round up hundreds of young uh, girls, and he'll have any pick that he wants, and he thinks he's in charge, and he's not. Do you get this? God sees all of that. And so when you think it's all out of control, and it is all... It's just chaotic, and God really isn't, isn't really supervising any of this. Get this, Xerxes could have had his eyes turned by any of those beautiful, and I'm sure there were plenty of beautiful young maidens that would have been just fine, but instead his heart is tenderized to the one Jewish girl in the whole group. Later, that girl, I, I'll tell you the rest of the story. We're going to come back to it in the weeks ahead. Later, that girl <clears throat> would learn that the king put out a, a, a total uh, killing, a, just a slaughter of all Jews, because there's a guy, Haman, who's one of the big leaders in the country, and he doesn't like Jews, and he really doesn't like Mordecai. He hates Mordecai. And so he's going to kill off all the Jews, and, and Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've you got to tell the king you're going to kill off our people. And she says, he'll kill me. He will kill me. And, and Mordecai says, we're going to die anyway. You might as well try. Might as well die trying. And she goes, I, I can't do this. And he says, you, this is what you're made for, girl. This is why you're here. And so she goes in and doesn't get killed by entering the, the king's presence unannounced. She doesn't get killed in 
in asking, making the plea. In fact, he figures a way to overcome the law of the Medes and the Persians and create another law so that Jews could defend themselves. And that doesn't sound like such a big deal. That sounds like, oh my gosh, it could have been bad. And this is a, just a dusty story from the Old Testament that we really don't need. And nothing could be further from the truth because if you think that's just ordinary, I'm telling you, God is in the ordinary. Just like he's in the ordinary of your life. Because if, if the king had gone through on his proposal to kill off all the Jews, then Esther would be banished. She'd be killed. And that'd be the end of the story. And that'd be the end of the Old Testament, which it is anyway. But then you know what would happen? There would be no Joseph and Mary. Because why? Because the Jews would be gone. And if there were no Joseph and Mary, guess what? There would be no Jesus. Do you understand how significant this story is? So even though you think God is not all that interested in the details of my life, no, no, he's actually orchestrating them. Even the bad ones, even the sinful ones that, that other people do to you or that happen in culture or happen in society, don't think for a moment that God is disinterested. That he, There was a theory 100 years ago about God being the, the watch and he winds up the watch and throws it into the universe and he lets it go. No, his hand is over all of it. He knows every time a sparrow falls, he knows the hair is on your head. He knows it all. So there's no sense that anything about my life is anything less than extraordinary. It's never going to be just plain ordinary because he gets the right people to the right place at the right time to do the right job. So don't ever think that your life is just commonplace, predictable, and ordinary because you are within the scope of God's sight. So there's nothing normal or ordinary about your life. It is the art of living the unordinary life. God tells us that, and Esther illustrates it for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? So Lord, you put it all together for good, for our good, and we thank you. Help us to be the ones who love you dearly all the days of our lives. Help us to be, Lord, the ones who follow in faith, and don't stop or ever think that what we're doing is insignificant or just routine. We love you, Lord. We really do. And we see your greater plan now and that you're involved in the details of our lives. May we be the people who walk in faith for your glory. And we know for our own good. We pray in Christ's name. Everybody say amen.